So who here has a few thoughts whirling through their minds in response to this morning's scripture reading? Any hands? Yeah? No, 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 not you women. Put your hands down. I'm only speaking to the men. You know, if you have a comment, you can take it home, tell your husband or another man, and they can bring it to me. We can address it that way. Hey, I'm just telling you what the Bible says, right? Again, for some of us, when we realize that, you know, there are some of these things in the Bible, we wonder, what's the point? Why, why are we reading the Bible? What do we do with all these contradictions? If it condones violence, why not just walk away from it and the church altogether? Why not just listen to NPR and read poetry and go for walks in the woods? I mean, those are all good things. You can do those. But the question remains, right? I believe, and the, and the premise of this sermon series is that actually the the problem is not primarily with Scripture itself, but with what we have been taught that Scripture is, and therefore how we read it, how we use it. And so in this sermon series, I'm trying to juxtapose passages like those we just read in order to invite us to, to reimagine what Scripture is and, and how we use it, how we listen for the still-speaking, life-transforming voice of God in it. So, what do we do with this morning's set of passages and, sadly, the many more like them that are in the Bible? I want to begin by looking a little bit more closely at them. Now, Galatians, again, is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a small Christian community in this Roman city of Galatia. It's comprised predominantly of Gentile, that is, non-Jewish followers of Jesus. Now, if you read the New Testament closely, you'll start to notice that the early church after Jesus' death and resurrection was far from being one big happy family. There was a lot of tension, a lot of competing ideas about the meaning of, of Christ's life for how they were to live. Because Jesus lived and died as a Jew, never knew himself as anything other than a Jew, his 12 disciples were all also Jews. Some of his early followers, like Peter, emphasized that, well, non-Jews, they could join this Jesus movement, but it was still essential to observe certain Jewish religious and cultural customs, like male circumcision and keeping kosher, among others. That is, it was important to maintain certain distinguishable outer markings, Things that people could see, signs that, that set these people apart from the world around them. But then there were some others, like the Apostle Paul, who argued that while he still observed these customs as a good Jew, it wasn't necessary for everyone to do so, especially non-Jews who joined the Jesus movement. Right? These outer markings, these customs... These are not what define us as members of the body of Christ, but rather, as he writes in our reading from Galatians 3, in Christ, the implications for each of these distinctions in our lives, it, it fades away. There is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female. Categories like these 
alone no longer define us, who is in, who is out. Now, this is not to say that our differences are erased, because like at Pentecost, our, our diversity remains good and holy. But in Christ, our differences, how the, the wider world labels and categorizes and defines us, these things no longer determine our standing, our legitimacy, or lack thereof. And so Paul insists that a, a non-Jew does not need to become a Jew, does not need to circumcise himself or follow kosher food laws in order to follow Jesus. Nor in the body of Christ are those who are enslaved forced into servitude. No, here their status does not define their value, doesn't define their worth, their standing, their role. Here, they can lead in every way. Lastly, in Christ, we are no longer defined by our sex or gender. A man, a husband, is not valued above a woman or a wife, nor is his word, for that matter. He is no more inherently fit to lead, to teach, to have authority than a woman is. Men and women and those who, like the Ethiopian eunuch baptized in Acts, are neither male nor female, these, these still all exist. Our gender, our sexual differences, they're not erased. They, they simply no longer define or limit or privilege us. What matters, Paul says in Galatians 5, is faith working itself out in love, is faith in action, is faith in the direction of freedom and mercy and equity and justice for all. That that is what is meant to distinguish us. And so we see scripture bearing witness to this in places like our reading from Acts 18. There we are introduced to Priscilla, or, or Prisca as she's called elsewhere, and her husband Aquila. Now in Acts, here and elsewhere, Priscilla is not depicted as subordinate to her husband, but as his equal. She is not described as taking her cues from him, but as a mutual partner in their work together. Now, the early church didn't have public gathering spaces, didn't have large buildings like this of their own, and so they often met in people's homes. They relied on those who had the space to share it with the community. And Priscilla and Aquila, they were two important figures who did just that. And yet, in Scripture, Priscilla is not once described as being preoccupied with domestic duties. Acts doesn't praise her for discussing, uh, by discussing how clean her home was or how good her pies were. Rather, Acts lifts her up as a co-laborer with Paul in, in mission and in teaching, as one who traveled extensively throughout the Roman Empire, which is a big deal in the ancient world. And when Acts 18 introduces us to Apollos, a man that it says was, uh, had been instructed in the way of the Lord who, who spoke with burning enthusiasm and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, a man who spoke boldly in the synagogue. It also goes on to describe how, well, he still required some extra teaching and, and direction from Priscilla before 
being fully entrusted with preaching the gospel message more publicly. That is, 2,000 years ago, in the early Jesus movement, we see a learned, competent, and confident woman with communal authority to exercise decisive leadership in relation to an eloquent man, well-versed in the scriptures, as verse 24 says. And likewise, as this gospel, this good news was proclaimed throughout the Roman Empire, a, a disconcerting number of people began to join the Jesus movement. Well, disconcerting for those invested in the status quo. In a letter that's been preserved from the Roman governor Pliny to the emperor Trajan from around the year 111, we hear him talking about how enslaved women who had joined this Jesus movement had become deaconesses, had become leaders in the church of a place called Bithynia. Such countercultural actions made this Jesus group suspect in the minds of these political leaders. I mean, these were not only women who in the church were given positions of leadership and authority based on the gifts and skills they had. These were women who were enslaved. This was not their place in society. Even more, we have records of those who were enslaved who upon joining, upon hearing the, the gospel and joining the church, they expected the church to buy their freedom. After all, Paul says in Christ, there is no slave and free. And as he says in chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, as we reflected on earlier in June. Now, I cannot emphasize enough how radical, how countercultural this was for Paul and other early Christians to insist on in their religious and cultural context. You see, it was quite commonplace for a Greek or Roman man to, in this ancient world to express gratitude to the gods that he was fortunate enough to be born a human being and not a beast, a Greek and not a barbarian. That's anybody who's not a Greek. A free man and not a slave, a man and not a woman, right? For each of these conferred greater privilege and power in society. We can hear echoes of this sentiment in our own world. Then, as now, this cultural attitude infiltrated and threatened to distort the early church. But in Christ, in Christ's church, all are equal, all are one. None is privileged above any other. So countercultural and, and therefore controversial and difficult was this teaching and social practice that in Galatians 2, Paul speaks about getting into an argument with Peter over acknowledging this truth in word, but doing the opposite in practice. And so difficult was it that Paul himself seems to have struggled to fully understand the implications of the truth he was trying to convey. Which, I think if we're honest, each of us can relate to, right? It's, it's one thing to say something in theory, like, yeah, love your neighbor. That sounds good. But it's another thing to know what it means to 
to actually put that into practice in every aspect of our lives and in different concrete situations in real time amidst conflict and polarization. It was the same for Paul and other early Christians. And so alongside passages like Galatians 3 and Acts 18, we also see passages like 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, among others. Right? Since these were letters written to church communities in response to the conflicts and challenges they were navigating, well, it appears that some were not so keen on how certain women were interpreting their, their freedom in Christ to speak and act that they were doing so in ways that were unbecoming of them as women. And so these letters contain Paul's response to the conflicts, namely, where he tries to reestablish order in the church by going back on his message in Galatians, back on his own practice concerning his good friend Priscilla, and resorts to implementing hierarchies based on gender. Women, you should be silent in the churches. You're not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate. If there is something you want to learn, ask your husbands. It's shameful for a woman to speak in church. And so, like last time, we are left to ask ourselves, well, which is it, Paul? Do our differences no longer determine our roles, our calling, no longer privilege some and marginalize others? Or do they? The thing is, Scripture has preserved both of these side by side. Rather than being a book with straightforward answers, a rule book that we can quick use as a simple and straightforward reference guide, Scripture captures the struggles of the early church including among Paul and Peter themselves, as they struggle to live out the implications of the gospel, of this new reality into which Christ calls us to live. So we can use scripture to justify either the subordination of women, the silencing of their voices, the dismissal of their testimony, the invalidation of their qualifications, the relegating to domestic duties, we can do that. Those scriptures exist. Or we can use scripture to elevate women's voices, to support their full leadership, to honor their bodily autonomy and the fullness of how they reflect the image of God. See, scripture captures this dynamic, ongoing conversation between God and God's people struggling to figure out what it means every day in different circumstances to work out our faith in love. It, as such, it's not a set of stories about people who have it all together that we are therefore just meant to listen to what they say and imitate it. Scripture is filled with stories of imperfect, fallible humans struggling on the way. Scripture calls us not to emulate them, but to learn from them, to see ourselves in them, to see our struggles in theirs, 
as we also humbly seek to discern how God is calling us to live today. And so the central point of this entire sermon series is that how we read scripture and how we understand how we understand what it what it says what it calls us to it matters because it shapes what we can imagine our world to be it shapes how we live it shapes the the community we are building how we engage the conflicts and challenges of our own personal lives it shapes whether and how we engage in the world as citizens it shapes whose lives we focus on, who is empowered, who can flourish, and who gets overlooked or silenced, who is disempowered. It shapes our assumptions about what it means to love God and love our neighbor. See, there is no simply saying, eh, the Bible tells me so, there it is. God said it, I believe it, that's it. And, and thinking that we can just sit on the sideline. Silence in the midst of the ongoing dialogues or whatever choice that we make, it's, it's an active choice. And so may we, as individuals, as a church, may we risk getting in on the messy, frustrating, surprising, transforming conversation for our healing, for the healing of all the world. Amen.